Let's pray. Father, we just invite your Holy Spirit into this place, into this gathering this morning. We pray that you would speak to each heart here today, Lord. Thank you for your incredible love for us. And I pray that today we would somehow leave changed because we've encountered your presence and your love for us this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. All right. So what's the most holy city in the world? Yeah. yeah, why do we say that as Christians? Why do we say that Jerusalem is the most holy city in the world? Why do we believe that or say that? Because there's a lot of potholes in there. Because there's a lot of potholes in there, okay. Well, I don't think that's the reason, but... Uh, let's, it's been around, well, but, but there's a lot of ancient cities in the world. Yeah, it, but, but it's because it's, it's where our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. It's where he was resurrected. It's a city where he, he preached. It's a city where he did healings. Uh, it's, it's holy to us because it's a place where if we visit, it's a place where we literally can walk in the footsteps where our Lord Jesus Christ worked. Now, how did Jerusalem get the... How was it picked to be this place where, where Jesus uh, would, would actually be crucified and, and resurrect and, and ascended to heaven? How did it get chosen for such an honor? Well, actually, this honor began actually a thousand years before Jesus was born. It actually goes back to the time of, of King David. And so if we start looking at Jerusalem and our Lord Jesus Christ, we have to actually look at the history of the connection between King David and Jerusalem because the two actually go hand in hand. Now, today we're going to continue our sermon series called The Songs of David. And as you recall, this is a sermon series where we're looking at different episodes from David's life, and we're looking at the psalms that were written in response to them. Now, what do you think was the most important event in David's life? Was it the day when, when, when Samuel poured oil over his head and said you would be the king of Israel? Was it the day in which... He finally had defeated Saul and he could proclaim himself king. Was that the day? Was it the day maybe that we talked about last time when he brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem? Was that the greatest day of his life? Now, the greatest day actually was the day that we just read about in 2 Samuel 7. Because this was the day in which David learned about an eternal covenant that would be made between him and his future offspring. And that's what we're going to look at today. Now the Lord, um, David, really had a heart for God. And that's one of, the, one of the things that you just note about him. He had a heart for God. And, and we're told that when David had built a house for himself, so he, he, had, he now had, was, had made Jerusalem his capital. He had built a big house for himself. And then he just said, you know, I just have this heart to build a, a temple for the Lord. I want to do this. And so he goes to the prophet Nathan, and Nathan says, go ahead, build that temple. The Lord is with you. And then that very night, there was a dream. And it was a dream in which God spoke to Nathan about the life of David. And it turns out 
that the Lord would not have David to build a house for him. Instead, the Lord was going to build a house for David. And you'll notice in this passage, there's an interesting play on words that are, that's going on here. Uh, and the play on words are, is the word house, because the word house in Hebrew can either mean a temple or it can mean a dynasty. And so that's what's, that's what's going on here. David's and the Lord's role are now to be reversed. David intended to build a house for God, but the Lord would build a house, a temple for David. You don't need to have that up yet, Shar. Uh, we're, not, we're, not, we're just we're not looking at the passage yet. I'm looking at everyone looking at the passage. We're not looking at that right now. Uh, David's and Lord's role, as I said, are reversed. Now, in verse 12 of this passage, the Lord promised that through David's offspring, he would establish his kingdom, a kingdom which would last forever. Now, until it, uh, unlike the kingdom of Saul, do you remember what happened to the kingdom of Saul while why the kingdom of Saul ended? Do you remember why? Because he was disobedient. God couldn't trust him. And this was going to be something different. His relationship with David was going to be different because his steadfast love would never depart from David. Now, why, why did the Lord enter into this kind of covenant with David and not with Saul? Is it just David was a better man? Was he just better than him? Was he more righteous? Is that why? No, it's not because of that. Why did he do that? Because God just wanted it that way. Because God simply just wanted it that way. It was, it was what God desired to do. You know, have you ever had a desire on your heart, something that you really wanted from the Lord? Something that you just wanted and you prayed about it and the Lord didn't give it to you. And the Lord didn't give it to you because he actually had something better for you that you never intended for. You know, uh, when Julie and I came to California, we came here to, to go to seminary. Our intention was to go back to New York immediately uh, after we completed seminary. But the Lord had different plans. So when I was in seminary, Father Richard Meniz uh, came to me and he said, you know, there's a group of people who want to plant a church uh, in the Inland Empire. You know, would you mind coming together with me and see, and seeing what this is all about? So I went with him, and I had no idea that it was going to lead to this. And so 10 years later, here I am. But the Lord had something better for me, better than what I planned for myself, just as he did for David. He had something better for him. David wanted to build a house, but no, God wanted to build his house. So Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann calls 2 Samuel 7 the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament. The most crucial theological statement in the, in the Old Testament. Why? Because up to this point, God's commandments have been characteristically conditional. Saul did bad. His kingdom came to an end. But now David, David was going to be blessed and his household was going to be blessed unconditionally. Unconditionally, he was going to be blessed. And so no more would disobedience create separation from God. 
but God was going to be profoundly committed to him forever. He is the creation of God's powerful, relentless graciousness. Nothing that he did. God created David who he is. And that same kind of graciousness would be poured on all of humanity. So when we hear this unconditional love of David, it's an unconditional love for all people that will become available through the offspring of David. Now, out of this oracle emerges the hope held by Israel that there is a coming David who will right every wrong and who will establish good governance. Now, we know from Israel's history, if you, if you read about it, if you read about it in the Kings, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't end well for the offspring of David. David's offspring are as evil as the offspring of any kingdom that you'll find. It's not good. But a thousand years after David, a thousand years later, one of his offspring arises in fulfillment of this prophecy in 2 Samuel 7. And it's fulfilled in a messianic hope through the birth of Jesus Christ. You see, this passage is ultimately a description of the kingdom of Jesus. Through David and his offspring, Jesus' reign would last forever. Now, at first glimpse, it appears that this passage is referring to, to Solomon. You know, if you, David's son would build a, a, the first temple of the Lord. Now let's look at 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. And this is what it says. I will raise up your offspring after you. This is the Lord speaking to David. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And we know, of course, that, that Samuel did build a temple dedicated to the worship of the Lord. But then verse 13 continues, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, we know, of course, that, that Solomon's kingdom didn't last forever, did it? In fact, if you look at Samuel's reign, it ends really pretty poorly. Because Solomon marries wives from all different countries. He had lots and lots of wives. And all these wives brought their gods to them into Jerusalem. And, and his heart became divided. And the consequence of his divided heart is that the Lord divided the kingdom. No longer would there be a kingdom in which the family of David would rule over. Judah, one of the tribes of Israel, would be separated out from the other 11 tribes of Israel. And so it was only that one tribe, Judah, that they continued to rule in. That was a consequence of Solomon's sin. However, the house that David's offspring Jesus would build would not be a temple made with hands, but a temple where the presence of God dwells in his people. As Paul says in Acts chapter 17, this is chapter 17, this is verses 24 to 25, before the uh, Areopagus in Athens, he says, 
the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Samuel 7 is looking to the future, to the day when David's offspring would reign. The beginning of that rule was the coming of Jesus. And it began when he ascended into heaven. And he ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the Father. And his throne will never come to an end. He reigns. He reigns not just in Israel, but he reigns over all kingdoms, both in heaven and on earth. And one day, Paul writes in Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, if you want to, you can turn to your Bibles this morning. We're going to look at um, a psalm that refers to this event. It's Psalm 132 we're looking at, that psalm that we read. Now, we don't actually have a psalm that David wrote referring to this time period. It's too bad that we don't, we just don't. And yet it's referred to actually in several different psalms. And we're looking at one today called Psalm 132. It celebrates, this is a psalm that, that celebrates the Lord's choice of David's dynasty and Jerusalem as the central place where the presence of the Lord dwells. Now, this is a royal psalm, and there are probably about 10 royal psalms in all of Scripture. And what, what royal psalms do is they celebrate the role of the king in the worship of God. That, that in the monarchy of Israel, it's very important that the king be submitted to the Lord. Because if the king isn't submitted to the Lord, what happens? The people don't submit to the Lord, right? And so, and that's exactly what happens in the history. And so these, these are psalms that celebrate the king's role and the importance of the king's role in worship. Now, this psalm may have been used as a liturgy for pilgrims that would come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. It salutes Jerusalem as the place God has chosen to make the, his presence dwell and David's offspring as the dynasty that he's chosen to bless forever. So the city and its king go hand in hand. So when you think of Jerusalem, the city and, the, and its presence, they all go hand in hand. Now the psalm is structured into two parts, and we'll look at these two parts now. Verses 1 through 10 remembers David's efforts to find a resting place for the presence of the Lord. So it, remember the event that we talked about last week where, we're, where he brought the, uh, the, the ark back into the, uh, to Jerusalem? That's what's celebrating the first part of this psalm. And the second part remembers David and his sons uh, who will rule over Jerusalem as the chosen representatives that will last forever. So one is talking about the, the presence of the Lord and the other is talking about David and his offspring. Now, one of the ways that distinguishes our worship as Anglicans is the use of liturgy, right? You know, liturgy is, is something that's a part of us. Um, the reason that we engage in liturgy because we just see that as really a better way to enter into worship. It helps us to enter in. And it's the same thing that's used by Jews. 
So Jews actually use liturgy as well as part of the way that they worship. So liturgy is communal participation in praise, thanksgiving, supplication, and repentance. So we're doing this as a community. We enter into this together. In liturgy, we also remember the stories of the past. And so there's an intentionality of remembering and then entering into those stories. Because remembrance, we said, is really a very important part of how we give praise to the, the Lord. Because if we remember the great things that he's done, then we're able to praise him and keep alive the things that he's done in the past. Now, in Jewish liturgy, for instance, even today, seven days are set aside in autumn to celebrate Sukkot, which is, um, is a time when Jewish, Jews actually build and then they stay in temporary shelters for a period of seven days in order to remember the time that they lived in the desert for 40 years. So this is a, this is a picture of one of those temporary shelters in modern-day Israel. So they, look, they could look something like that. Um, you'll see them in New York City. Jews will build them in New York City during Sukkot. Um, they just, but they live in these temporary shelters for seven days. This is liturgy. This is liturgy. This is, this is where you're, you're literally taking something that happened in the past, bringing it into the present, acting it out yourself in order to remember an event. And so the Israelites are to remember. For Anglicans each week, we eat the meal that Jesus commanded us to eat. We're entering into the story where, where Jesus uh, had his last meal with his disciples. And we're entering into that story ourselves in order to, to remember what Jesus has accomplished for us. And not to lose fact of the, the continued efficacy of his crucifixion and resurrection. In liturgy too, we, we on Palm Sunday, we, we carry palms and we, and we march around uh, the church. And we do that in order to remember the event, in order to enter into the story. And so liturgy provides us with a way to remember what God has done. And then remembering should lead us to praise and thanksgiving, repentance and supplication. That's, that's why we engage in these things. We're entering into the story. We're remembering what God has done. Now, Psalm 132 begins with an appeal. It, it says to remember the oath that, that David made. So we're called to remember it. And then we learn the nature of that oath. And there's literally a quotation that's taken from David in verses 3 through 5. And I'd like us to say those together because th this psalm is a liturgy. So it's pilgrims that would come to Israel and they would literally proclaim these words. And so let's, let's imagine that we are pilgrims, we're in Israel, uh, we're, get, we're getting ready to enter into Jerusalem and we're saying these words together. Okay, ready. I will not enter my house. Now, so the pilgrims have proclaimed this. And then in verse 8, the pilgrims are called to go to the place where the presence of God now dwells. That place has been chosen by the Lord himself. And we learn what that place is in verse 13. It's Zion. Now, the word Zion, have you heard the word Zion before in Scripture? What does it mean? What does Zion mean? It means Jerusalem. 
It's a, it's, it's a synonym for Jerusalem. So if you see Zion and you see Jerusalem, they're the same thing, okay? They're both synonyms. Now, technically, uh, Zion is, a, is one of the mountains of, that, uh, that a part of Israel resides on, but it becomes known as just a synonym for, for, for Jerusalem. So when you see Zion and you see Jerusalem, they are, they are synonyms. Now, worship there is about an encounter, an encounter with the mysterious life-giving presence of the Lord. The people are seeking the Lord. The people are seeking God's presence, and they're seeking a place where God will bless them, where God will hear their needs, where, where the joy of God's presence can be found. And so imagine pilgrims that are hungry, that are seeking, and, and, and they're coming because they yearn for the presence of God. And as the pilgrims gather at this resting place, which is, which is the, the place where the ark is, the hope is that the Lord's priest will minister to the Lord in a righteous way so the people themselves will be able to, to worship in a righteous way. And that the people then will be able, it says, to be able to offer shouts of joy to the Lord. Remember we said that worship isn't, you know, this... You know, very, you know, kind of, kind of proper. But it's actually, they want to shout praise to the Lord. They want to shout praise to the Lord. Now, at first, this may seem like a really strange thing. Why do pilgrims, the Jewish people, want to remember this particular event, the search for the Ark of the Lord? Why would that be something that they will want to intentionally remember? And, and so they put a liturgy to this. Why would they want to remember that? Well, in essence, it's the longing of all human beings, isn't it? You know, we long for the presence of the Lord. We long for more of him. We need the Lord's presence. You know, the reason we gather each week is not to hear a sermon, is not to hear somebody read from some ancient text. It's not to sing some songs in order to, to feel good about ourselves. The reason that we, we come to worship is that we're seeking the presence of the Lord, aren't we? Aren't we seeking to have an encounter with the living God? That's what this is about, because we're seeking more of him. It's because it's the human longing. It's what we were created for. We were created to be in relationship to God. To be without the presence of God is to be without the fellowship of the divine. It's to be without the resources of heaven. It is, it is to be a people without hope because the only thing that we can see is with our eyes. But when we're in the presence of God, that all the resources of heaven become available to us. We see a reality that we can't simply see when we're, when we're going about our days. To remember David's search is to remember the constant yearning for God's presence. Now verse 10 ends this section. And it's actually a prayer. It's a petition. And it reads, um, it says, it's just simply a prayer. That the Lord would not turn away from his anointed, but continue to be present in David. Now, the way this psalm is structured, that's the prayer. And then the second part is the answer to the prayer. So now we get an answer to that. In verse, in, in, beginning now in verse 11. Now, this part focuses on the eternal covenant that the Lord has made with David and his offspring. 
And what you're going to notice here is there's actually a lot of parallels between the first part and the second part. In both parts, it begins with an oath, and then, and then there's a quotation. So this time, like the first one, there's an oath, but the second part remembers the oath that is made by the Lord. So now we have the Lord's oath, and like the first quotation, it recalls the nature of the oath. And so once again, we are pilgrims, we're in Israel, and we're remembering this, and we have this bit of liturgy on verses 11 and 12, and let's say to them together, we're entering into the story. Ready? One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, I shall teach them. Their sons also forever to sit on your throne. Now, as we've noticed, this psalm serves as a pilgrim liturgy of prayer and promise. And it may actually belong to a time when there actually wasn't a king on the throne of Israel. It might, this may have actually been written after the Babylonian exile, when they've come back to Jerusalem and there is no king on the throne. And so the psalm points out the, the place and the person go together. It, it, it wants to point out that, you know, the, without the person, there's something missing from the place. Zion is not just the place where God's presence lies, but it's the place where God's kingdom, the kingdom of his anointed, is supposed to, to be manifested eternally. And it doesn't seem to be the case right now. And then in verse 17, we actually have a prophetic word. It's a prophetic word about Zion, Jerusalem. And it reads, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. So in the Bible, the, a horn is a symbol of God's power because it was thought that in animals like rams and oxen and goats that their power actually lay in their horns. And then a lamp is a symbol of truth, wisdom, and the spirit. And so verse 17 is a promise from the Lord for the restoration of the might of David in Zion and his wisdom and truth on display in the world of darkness. That prophetic word would not be fulfilled, though, until the coming of Jesus Christ. It didn't happen before then. But in Jesus, the long-promised Messiah has now come to Jerusalem, and his reign will never come to an end. In Jesus, the presence of God has returned to Zion and to the world as the Holy Spirit is released on the first Pentecost day. So Psalm 132 celebrates the dual choice of Zion as the place where God's presence resides and the place where David's offspring sit on the throne. But if you were to go to Jerusalem today, if you go to Jerusalem today, you won't find the Ark of the Covenant. It's been lost in history. We're not even quite sure where it is these days. And nor will you find a king of David sitting on the throne. He's not there. There's not, a, there's not an Israeli monarchy. And for the Jews, this has meant coming to grips with a double disappointment. 
because this psalm says that Zion is the place where these two dwell. For Christians, however, we see Psalm 32 with, with new eyes. We understand these things in light of a new revelation. The eternal offspring of David does indeed reign in Jesus Christ. And the place of his presence is in a new Zion, the hearts of his people. We have much to be grateful for and much to share with the world. Amen.